If you don't actively engage in the discussion and a, a mentality around how to achieve gender equity, you won't achieve, it won't happen by itself. Welcome to this episode of The Business of Architecture and Design, where we rejoin our host, Isabel Tolland, Director of Aileen Sage Architects, and our guest, SJB's Adam Haddo, who talks more about work culture, gender balance in architecture, and being a member of Champions for Change. And now, over to Isabel. Can you talk to us a bit about the work culture at SJB and how you keep staff motivated and yep. how you attract kind of top talent and yep. continue to do that? I think we're really super lucky at the office. We have a really amazing group of people to work with and I think part of that comes from a good connection between the partners and the senior people. Um, I think like breeds like. If you enjoy where you are and you enjoy the place, people are attracted to that as a place to work. I also think that we try to ensure that we're um, incredibly accessible so that we're not, you know, hiding ourselves away. We're intimately involved in projects and involved in people's lives. And, I mean, really we just try to make a place that we want to work at and that generally is then a place that other people want to work at. So from a cultural level, you know, it's important to celebrate things. It's also important to commiserate things. It's important to kind of share in people's lives inside and outside of business. Um, one of my good friends is a refugee and she always is quite surprised when you, in Australia we talk about work-life balance and she's like, there's no such thing as work-life balance. You know, like work and life are the same things. You, you, of course you need to kind of take time out of both of them to make sure that you feel balanced, but actually there's no such thing. Like work is life and life is work. And I think in a certain way, I share that mentality. I share yeah. the mentality that actually we're super passionate about what we do and it doesn't you don't just switch that off, you know, you go home no. and when you're really excited about something you'll work, you know, work in inverted commas, not necessarily mm. in the office, but you'll be home reading about it and drawing about it and there's other times when, you know, you're getting married or having kids where it's actually important to take the time out and not be thinking about someone's project. Yeah. So that's the kind of culture that we try to build in the office. And I was a country kid. I, I went to a Melbourne office. I came from very, you know, very humble background from my parents' side. I, I kind of started working at, at SJB was originally um, an all Jewish firm. So I started working as a kind of non-religious person in a Jewish firm and became a partner of that firm. I went to a Catholic college as someone who was pretty, I'm pretty agnostic. Um, you know, I found myself having opportunity in both of those areas, and I think that there's a there is a huge level of generosity in that from people around you. So I think we try to kind of give that generosity back to people, create that opportunity for them. How would you describe the gender balance at SJB? It's better. <laughs> it's better. It's getting better. We are within the the definition of gender balanced. So across the business, we are fifty fifty. We are not gender balanced in our directorship level and that takes time to fix. We have an ambition to have that fixed uh, by 2025 that, that we will be gender balanced across all sections of the business and we're tracking quite well for that um, in the sense that I think if you looked at SJB as directors across all of the divisions and across all of the offices, we, we sit within the 40-60% gender balance across all the directors. In the business that I own and manage, we're not at all. We're 100% men at the right. director level. And, I, you know, I gave a talk a few years ago. I'm a part of the Champions of Change in Sydney, um, which are the 10 largest practices. One of the directors from each of those 10 practices gets together to talk about gender issues within the profession. 
yep. to work out how collectively we can try to fix the imbalance because what what was it started by Elizabeth Broderick, um, which is a much more um, national and global view of it, and we are just the kind of architectural component of it. But what was starting to happen was there started to be competition between practices about gender, and actually that's the worst thing that can happen. We need to make it a non-competitive environment and try to share knowledge about how to create a more a workplace which is more gender neutral. And that's not just about um, gender, it's about sexuality, it's about culture. So how do you kind of create an environment which, you know, I'm now a middle-aged white guy. I'm the guy who I thought I'd never be, you know, (laughs) and all of my partners are men. You know, they're from diverse cultural backgrounds, but how was, you know, a gay kid from the country, worked in a Jewish firm, went to a Catholic college, is agnostic, runs, starts their own practice in Sydney, end up having three business partners who are men. Like, how did that happen? Like, there wasn't an active decision on my behalf to, to make that happen, but there was a passive decision to make that happen, I suppose. It was kind of, if you don't actively engage in the discussion and a, a mentality around how to achieve gender equity, you won't achieve, it won't happen by itself. You actually have to work on achieving gender equity. So what do you think needs to happen? What are you actively doing then to um, do We're doing a lot of things. So we just, one of the most recent things, the most uh, externalised things is our parental leave policy. So we've launched a parental leave policy, which is gender agnostic. So everyone in our office gets 10 weeks of paid parental leave Uh, on the birth of their child. That can be taken in different ways depending on whether you're the birth-giving parent or not. Uh, Equally, it's open to people who are adopting or there are a huge number of ways people have kids. So that's been really great Um, and we've seen the first four people in our office have um, parental leave um, for their children. We did a, I think there might be six now actually, we, we did a analysis statistically and I think over the next five years there's the potential, if we use the Australian statistics, the potential for our office to generate 76 children <laughs> and that's kind of scary because you think, oh my gosh, that's a lot of uh, parental leave, 12, 10, <laughs> lots of, it's like 720 weeks of parental leave. So it's about managing that and making it sustainable from the officer's point of view. It has to be something that is beneficial to both the individuals and the practice as a collective. And it's really hard, actually. The first couple have been really difficult to manage from the practice point of view because it's mm-hmm. something new, you've never done it before. Yep. What happens when someone steps out of the practice, whether they were a kind of senior person or a junior person, mm-hmm. how do we manage that? But we're getting better at it, I think. Yeah, we're getting better at it. We're mm-hmm. kind of working out where our strengths and weaknesses were. As a partner in the practice, it's been really stressful, actually, mm. because generally people taking time out for ch- to have kids are generally relatively senior in the practice. Yep. And generally then what happens is a partner, you don't want to push that pressure onto other people because they're already loaded with projects and clients. Mm. So you take up the slack. So Right. Well, not the slack, but you take up the project work that needs to be taken up. There's only so much of that you can do. So then you have to think about how do you, you know, bring people in to help take over some roles and Mm. that takes time. And so, yeah, it's really massive learning curve for Mm. us as as leaders in the business. But it's been really beneficial. And I think the the people in the office who have taken the parental leave have been really supportive, Mm. uh, have felt really supported. And we're also working on how to make sure that the people who work around them don't feel overwhelmed with them yep. not being there how do you re how do you engage people in the office you know in a flexible way mm. so we also then we also launched a all roles flex across the office which is one of the principles of the champions of change that you offer flexibility to every staff member in the office yep. it doesn't mean everyone can just wander in and out of the office whenever they care yep. it just is about formalizing that 
opportunity for people to work flexibly, yep. uh, to you know start later or end earlier or work one day from home or mm-hmm. what are the kind of resources you need to have within the office, in the office and outside the office to make sure that happens. Yeah. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time on that. Um, Bianca, who's our HR person, has been you know really amazing at driving that, um, mm. trying to make sure that we iron out the problems yep. um, and fix it. One of the first steps does seem to be to I think it's great that you call it parental leave in particular is mm. recognizing that it is an issue for parents generally not just an issue for women. Yeah, it absolutely. Is. I mean, I think that the thing that we the reason that we are gender agnostic in terms of parental leave is that if everyone became gender agnostic to it, it would mean that the father in our office taking time off would ensure that a mother working somewhere else was able to go back to work and therefore helps balance out that um, raising children as Mm. opposed to it falling to the primary um, caregiver or the the birth-giving parent. So, yeah, I mean, I think in some cases... Uh, you know, our first two people take parental leave were fathers. And interestingly, both of their wives were in creative industries and they've been right. able to go back to work or um, and they're kind of transitioning that. So that's been really rewarding, I think, mm. uh, even though they're, they're the fathers in the office. And the next two have been mothers in the office and they've taken time out. I think it's super important to acknowledge that a family is, shouldn't fall to the kind of female in the family. It yeah. needs to be shared. And, and as an office, we have a responsibility to help make that possible. Obviously, Definitely. everyone can make their own decision about how they want to structure their families, but we mm. shouldn't make it more difficult for one partner or the other. Yeah. yeah. SJB is also committed to engaging Indigenous Australians through the Career Trackers program. Could you yeah. talk to us a bit about that program? So my husband's African-American. When he moved to Australia in 1996, he was working for HP and went to his first board meeting at HP and there were, he was sitting around the table and he's like, where are the Aboriginal people? And essentially the, the people at the table laughed at him and said, there aren't any. This was in Melbourne in the late 90s. There aren't any here. And he's like, you, that is ridiculous. The, you know, we have a population, we have an employee population of 10,000 people. You can't tell me there's no Aboriginal people. And they literally had no Aboriginal people working for them at that period of time. So Michael decided to do something about that and he set up an internship program. He had become he had as an African American, young African American in the US, he had gone through a project program called Inroads, which was about trying to break the cycle of disadvantage for for African American or, or essentially non-white Americans. And the intent is that if you come from a disadvantaged background, the your, your ability to have access to people who can make your life easier <laughs> in a way is very limited. So in my case, when I wanted to become an architect, my dad knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who got me work experience in the next town uh, in year 11. In Michael's case, he didn't have that network. So when he got to university, it was you know remarkable that he even got to university. But when he got to university, you know how do you then break into corporate America? In Australia and America, if you're from a disadvantaged background, the vast proportion of people who finish university will end up working for government. So there's not the break in into corporate America and corporate Australia, which is where a lot of the early changes happen in society because um, corporate companies can move a lot quicker than government. So Michael set up the Australian equivalent of, of inroads um, called Career Trackers, and that is now 10 years old, and the intent is to create opportunities for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to engage in corporate Australia, and he's um, signed up, up, I think now 20 companies who have signed 10-year agreements with them. Um, One of his big 
agendas was to not take any money from government so that there was consistency because often often funding arrangements around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues are linked to election cycles and mm. every three or four years something that was just starting to get going gets um, removed because the government changes or whatever. So he set this business up. Um, non-profit up, and we became, I think, the first employee. Um, obviously, at that point, I had no much choice. <laughs> we as partners believe in uh, diversity within the business, so it was kind of easy. We had the S and the J and B actually were all, their, fa- their families were all refugees, so there had been a long tradition of supporting refugees in Australia, so um, looking to support other disadvantaged parts of the community was pretty easy from our point of view. Yep. So at one point we had six um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander architects working in the office. That changes. They come for a 12-week period every year over summer um, or winter. Um, And the intent is that hopefully then if you're employing them over the university breaks when they get to the end of their career, you either have prepared them for a job in another corporate entity or given them confidence in that corporate entity or you're employing them yourself. And we've had successes and failures in that. Um, So we've got some, you know, I think now we have three Aboriginal architects in the office. On the back of Career Trackers, Michael also set up the equivalent organisation for asylum seekers and refugees called Career Seekers, and we've equally employ um, asylum seekers and refugees in the practice to, you know, in often cases they have had a career in their country of origin. Mm-hmm. as an architect or a draftsperson or an engineer or something like that right. and find it very difficult to get local knowledge, local experience and if they can't get local experience they'll never get a local job so yep. often it's just about providing 12 weeks of experience and then they're able to go and get a job in a related industry. Yeah. Uh, but also there are refugees and asylum seekers who come as children and they're at university and it's about creating a network for them to engage and be able to find opportunity. It's really rewarding as an office and I think it's yeah. made us more the kind of engagement with career trackers has made us more cognizant of the issues around Aboriginal Australia and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia. So we hope that, you know, just the little contribution we make to engaging with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, you know, helps that. Um, and sometimes that's really active, like during NAIDOC week we might do a proper event, um, whereas, you know, most of the time it's just about making sure there's the opportunity there and that we're culturally sensitive to you know, what is in a remarkable group of people, remarkable race of people who just have made an incredible contribution to the con- to our to our place. Off the back of, of that and kind of in parallel to that, we do a lot of pro bono work. We're doing, just finished a pro bono project with a Aboriginal community up in northwest Kimberley, which I've been working on for 15 years and we've just built the building. And, uh, you know, amazing. Bruno, who's the traditional owner up there, incredibly generous and he you know he talks about the fact that all of Australians own Aboriginal history and the kind of cultural knowledge that Aboriginal people have is about sharing that with white Australians and actually we're all one Uh, but that's an incredibly generous position for somebody who has been you know he only gained native, native title of his land last year you know he's been dispossessed of his land for such a long period of time but such an incredible incredibly open and generous position that he takes so you know for us it's such a um, rewarding thing to be involved in. Um, so yeah. pro bono projects like that, how do you build that into the practice? Is that something you always kind of try to build into your business model? It's far less structured than it probably should be. <laughs> it tends to be if someone has a personal interest in something that we will do it or if someone asks us to do something. So with the work we're doing up uh, with the new new people in Broome, north of Broome, that was something that I was personally interested in and got involved in 15 years ago and just have grown that. Mm. Um, we're doing some work with um, an elderly homeless shelter 
the inner east. Um, mm-hmm. So we're doing some work for them. We've been doing some work with a um, women's refuge on the North Shore, doing work with an Aboriginal community at the base of the Blue Mountains. So it's quite diverse and it's really based on people's interests and it probably should be more, we should make it more structured. My resistance to structuring it means that we might look at it a bit too closely and realise how much it costs us to do it. So I try to keep it a bit loose because I think if you want to do it, you'll make, you'll find a way to make it happen and we don't need to talk too much about it. I don't want to corporatise it too much, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, Um, fair enough. So as long as you can sustain it, it's more about kind of people's time and passion to give to it. And that coffin, you know, in the last project when we were finishing the one up in Broome, you know, caused stress in the office because the person who was working with me on that project was not working as much on the project that they should have been working on. So then we've got to balance that out. So there's always challenges to it, but they're worthwhile challenges. Yeah. It's kind of something that everyone understands is important. And I think the other thing in the office, well, I hope everyone understands that it's not just the people working on the job who are contributing to the job. It's actually everyone's contributing to the job because if they weren't doing their job, we wouldn't be able to be doing the pro bono work. So Mm. there is a whole of office approach that and we do try to talk about that and celebrate that. We actually don't talk about the pro bono work we do outside the office at all. We no. really just talk about it internally. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, do people bring projects to the office that they're passionate about? Occasionally. Um, occasionally they do. It's probably more to do with senior people uh, being passionate about something and knowing somebody. I think the other thing I realise as you get older is that people you went to school with or went to college with or went to university with suddenly end up being really important people Mm. (laughs) at a point in your life and you're like, how did you become that, you know? (laughs) Um, And so they have amazing jobs or amazing connections and they will often ask you to do things because, you know, you're an architect. So I think it grows with age. You get kind of more opportunities from that as as you kind of, your friendship group gets older and becomes more knowledgeable in a way. To hear more from Adam Haddo about how to future-proof your business, register now at australiandesignreview.com for the inaugural one-day Business of Architecture and Design Conference to be held on Monday the 11th of November in Sydney. Register at australiandesignreview.com. You mentioned earlier on that when the business started... It was not necessarily turning over that much income or profit. <laughs> how did how did that come about in terms of turning it around or, or growing it, let's <laughs> say, into a quite profitable? Company? Yeah, I mean, look, the, one of the biggest things I learned from SJ, the S and J and the B is the importance of having a business. It's not just a practice. <laughs> and if you're going to be successful at what you want to do, you have to be successful at all of it. There's no point doing really great buildings if you know, you're bankrupt Mm. um, or you're not paying your staff enough money and people feel undervalued. Um, People have to live, they have to have lives and they need to make, they should be making really great salaries in the city like Australia, like Sydney. They did have a very strong position about business, which they kind of drilled into us from a very young age. So we have a really strong, well-organised business. Mm-hmm. Um, we outsource all of our finances, so we don't. We do timesheets. You know, all of that is done, but we don't do it ourselves. So the other thing they taught me was that don't try to kind of do the things that you're not good at. Get yep. someone, pay someone well to do it, and expect highly of them. Mm-hmm. We always had a good business structure, but I think it was about learning how to make that work and how to make it sing, and just really about winning work, like. 
the hardest thing in architecture is about winning the work and doing a good building. Yeah. Um, the other bit should be easy. I think sometimes the other bit's the hard bit and the winning the work can be the easy bit, mm. and, you know, so you need to manage that. But we started winning work really when – or started being, being profitable or successful, that's probably is a better word, when we kind of grew with our clients. Mm-hmm. So as our clients grew and we grew and then suddenly a project which was – I mean, my first project David did was a renovation to a mock Tudor house and it was to extend the garage – and then literally 15 years later, that client rang me and said, I've just bought a building on Sydney Harbour. Would you do a mixed-use project for me? And it's like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you remembered <laughs> that I did that garage extension for you. So, you know, that, I think that grows with you. Just a bit more on leadership. What do you think you need to be an effective leader? You have to have a vision. You have to be able to be the cheerleader, that, that classic introvert-extrovert <laughs> where you have to kind of bring people along and be excited about it all and be excited about people's lives and care, actually. I think caring is super important to be a good leader. It's also about trying to find, trying to help people find the best in themselves. And that, mm. I, that's not just about staff. I think that's about clients. It's about working with councils. You know, how do you find the best out of something um, yeah. and make it, help polish it to be mm. really great. And I think it's also about acknowledging that you won't, as a leader, you, you're not good at everything and you can't be. Yeah. And my role in the office is quite broad. I need to touch a lot of little things, a lot of things in a small way. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I think, oh my gosh, I would love to just sit here for six months and draw and work on one project. Yeah. But that's not my strength. And there's someone in the office whose strength that is. And I need to make sure that I celebrate that strength in them because invariably they can't do what I do. Right. And so I think part of it is about acknowledging the team. You know, I think in my architectural education, there was a single type of architecture or architect professed. And I think as I've grown older, you know, you realise that actually there's not, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can be an architect and a lot of different ways to contribute yeah. and they're all equally relevant. Mm-hmm. And it's how do you make sure that they, people f- understand that in the office and they feel it and they, they, you know, you do acknowledge people who do things in the office that other people think is not as important, but actually they're all, you know, that's all important. So what do you think your greatest strength is then? Um, I'm a pretty happy kind of person <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, I mean, I, I think one of my strengths is I do find the, I do find the positives in things. I think that's almost my biggest weakness, um, people would say. I'm quite good at cheerleading the the pack, you know, getting everyone excited about something and getting them all on board and setting an agenda and keeping the pressure on on things. And I don't mean pressure in a negative way, I mean in a good way, like Mm. how do you kind of keep the energy into things? And, you know, everyone has... Goods and uh, good and bad days, but how do you kind of keep people on? How do you make people give their best, or how do you offer the opportunity for people to give their best? And I yeah. think, I hope that's what we do at the office. I think that's what we we provide at the office. People feel like that. They feel yeah. like they can contribute, and it can be open, and you can be it's fair and it's equitable and it's happy, but it's also it's also serious. You kind of started a practice that isn't named after yourself, and you mentioned yeah. before that often. At university, you're sort of taught, in a way, or it's implied that this, there's this hero architect. It's mm. all about the ego. Mm. Whereas for you, the practice, you know, you really recognise mm. um, that it's not about that, which I think is really important that we as a mm. profession do start mm. recognising a mm. lot more that it is much more about the broader team. Do you think this fact that you've sort of slotted into a practice that you're you're leading it, mm. but it's not sort of named after you mm. helps with that sense of team ownership as yeah, well? I think so. I mean, I think one of the big things I've learned from working with Aboriginal Australians is that 
they completely understand the idea of custodianship over ownership. I think that's what I see my role as the practice in the practice of being. It's like I'm a custodian of the practice and it will survive beyond me and there will be other people who have an influence on it and it will be good and bad and it will be different and there will be ups and downs. But actually my role is to, to help it for a period of time and to let it go and someone else will take over. You know, I've worked with other architects before who definitely see their role as the ownership of something and that it will live and die with them. Right. Um, and I think that would be really hard, actually, to be, a le- to be a leader in that kind of practice because it's really hard to engage people if it's not a you know, if it's just about you. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I think it was lucky at the start that I d- came into a practice which didn't have my name and yeah. so I wasn't seduced into that position of ownership. And I think then working with Aboriginal Australians, I've, I have learned this idea, the kind of value in custodianship over ownership. Um, and that's probably really recently I've kind of igno- I've thought about that and acknowledged that, that that's been super important, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful idea, that custodianship over ownership, I yeah. think. Who do you admire for being a great leader and why? Not necessarily within our profession. Well, I watched Jacinta Arden last night. I mean, she's an amazing leader. She's young. She's honest. In a world where it's very easy to make up fake things about yourself, she's rare in the sense that she can she can kind of speak truthfully about things and in a way which is quite disarming. I think a lot, of, you know, a lot of the times when you speak truthfully about things, it can be quite confronting to people. She can speak quite truthfully about things which is quite comforting which I think is really I don't I don't know how she does it she's amazing <laughs> actually but I do see that is it that that's a remarkable skill I mean I really admire my husband I think he has he has made in 10 years he's done something for Australia in terms of career trackers that is just unbelievably remarkable but he's made something important that no one thought was important it's become a part of the way in which people corporate australia talk about the way they and they engage with with the nation um mm. and that aboriginal and torres strait islander engagement has become important to people like lend lease and Qantas and nab and westpac and, and i'm not saying that it wasn't important to them before but mm. he's provided an opportunity a structure around which to help make that happen. And I yep. think the impact, you know, one of the really nice things about being um, the bystander in that process is that you can see people who Michael engaged with in the first group of 15 students who are now 10 years later and the roles they have and the impact that that, that engagement has had on their lives and the kind of the remarkable positivity that's come out of that. Mm. And then you know, on the back of watching the Adam Goods documentary last night. So, I mean, he's an amazing man. Like, yeah. we joke at home because my husband knows Adam quite well and I've never met him. <laughs> and I'm like, Michael, I want to meet Adam. And he's like, no, 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 you'll meet him one day. But I just think Adam is like such, you know, I I think that the leadership he shows, he, sh- he showed and continues to show in his engagement with the world really is just unbelievably generous and mm. unbelievably understanding. Yeah, they would be my three in terms of people I look up to, leadership. Great. What do you think SJB will be doing in five years that you're not doing now? In five years, I think that we will be more nimble. We probably will have more partners and I'd be interested to see whether I'm still a partner in five years and, and not that I don't want to be. I just think that one of the big opportunities as a leader in the business is to know when it's right for you to not be in the business. And I think that doesn't mean 
that doesn't mean that you that I won't be an architect. Or I won't be practicing in architecture. But we have a, such a we have a really amazing group of young leaders in the practice who have got so much potential. And I think I'm excited about in in five years' time. The kind of blissful thing for me would be that they would be running the business, and yep. I would be not running the business, and <laughs> that would be just amazing. How um, long have you been a principal for now, or director? Director, yeah, director. Um, since 2000. And, sorry, since yeah, since 2002. I started in 1994 and it's 2002. I've been a, par- a partner since. Uh, what I really want to be able to do in the next five years is get the business to a point where there is opportunity in it and opportunity for other people to come in and and to take over some of that custodianship and run it in a way which I don't know about, actually. That's the kind of exciting thing about something in five years' time is that they will make decisions that we would never make and they'll take the business in a direction that we would never take it in, and that's why you have them there. So yeah. that's kind of – it'll be, yeah, it'll be kind of – it'll be exciting to watch, actually, <laughs> see what happens with it. Yeah. If you are serious about leading your architecture or design business, you can't afford to miss Peter Verwa at the Business of Architecture and Design Conference in Sydney on November the 11th. Peter will outline vital information on growth opportunities – give you insights into working with international clients and predict where your business opportunities lie over the next three to five years. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. He thinks at a speed is just superhuman. That was Adam Haddo, Principal Director, SJB Sydney. If you run a business in the built environment industry, this keynote is essential. Register now at australiandesignreview.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. Join us next time to hear the final instalment of Adam Haddo's journey through the business of architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review, Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organisations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.